This is Blood and Firewater, a true crime, comedy, discussion type podcast. We shoot tequila and we chase it with a case of murder. Just as a disclaimer, this podcast contains mature content not suitable for all ages. So listener's discretion is advised. I am your host Rashad and I would like to thank each and every one of you for tuning into the show. We promise not to be insensitive to the victims and respect their families. However, we will poke fun at other persons, places, and things involved with the case. And we will keep our opinions based on the facts of the case. We're not professionals, and we don't pretend to be. So, I refuse to tell you about this case. I didn't really refuse to. You just asked, who was it? I was like, guess. No, but you I knew, telling you. you knew where it was the entire time. You could have just been like, let me see what this nigga right. I did it today. Like, Hmm? I did today. I was just like, oh, it's too late now. I mean, I'm not going to... Re- I looked at it, but I really went into to find a, the... What's this called? Hashtags and websites. For today's case, I figured since it's going to be a tough one... It was a tough one to write. Therefore, I believe it's going to be a tough one to read. I poured us double shots <laughs> of Wild, Wild Turkey 101 Bourbon Whiskey. So... Let's go ahead and get these up and down. Oh. So, at the end of this episode, please be sure to stay tuned for a promo from the, the podcast, Down the Rabbit Holes. Uh, before we get started, we have one new review to read tonight. Alright, so this one comes from Crime Enthusiasts. Uh, super interesting. Y'all are so good. We are really enjoying the dynamic and the stories. I look forward to a new episode as soon as I finish one. Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. We appreciate it yes. so much. Thank you. Thank you. You don't know how much these I, these iTunes reviews get us noticed. So if you would like your review read on the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever that you listen to your true crime podcast or whatever podcast you Yeah, make. no, you don't even have to be a podcast. Whatever yeah, you're if you doing. just listen to music. Yeah. Like, hey, just stop by and be like, hey, I got a couple. Yeah, couple I'm seconds. an entrepreneur. Why not? Check us out on Instagram. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Blood and Fire Water Podcast. Twitter at BFW Pod Squad. And if you want to just shoot us an email, shoot it to bloodandfirewater at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook uh-huh. and, and a TikTok. <laughs> So check those out too. You should see his face. Please. Yeah, or, or don't, you know. No, hey, no pressure. Please do. It, uh, it would be at um, Blood and Firewater on Facebook. And the at would be at Tinkwink because you can't change it. Mm. And that's what I started with. But it still is Blood and Firewater. I'm sure you can find it that way too. So, so tonight's case is the case of Ramon Salcedo. Nice. Does it ring a bell? Never heard of it. Nope. Never heard of it. Ramirez. Ramirez. That's the first thing I thought. Okay. That, 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 okay. All right. On yeah. April 14th, 1989, in Sonoma Valley, California, Ramon Salcedo began his killing spree. This case transcends any other case we've covered, as this spree wasn't just family, but also his in laws. He didn't kill strangers, but people he considered friends. Trigger warning. This case contains rape, drug use, murder, obviously, and child murders. This is not, I repeat, not for the faint at heart. Trigger warning. Mm-hmm. Trigger, trigger, it's trigger, like trigger, trigger. Netflix documentary. I told you. 
hey, if you love kids, <laughs> don't watch that. Ramon Salcido was born March 6, 1961 in Los Mochis, Mexico. No resort town, this one. Los Mochis is a dirty, smog-infested town, but still not the worst there could be in this Mexican state of California. Ramon's padre died when he was seven, and La Madre remarries, and Ramon and his four brothers and two sisters help support the family by selling tamales. Tamales? Around the age of 14, Ramon moves out of the family house after some not getting along with the stepdad took place. That puts us around 1975. And that must be like a universal misunderstanding. Like, nobody likes his stepdad. In 1980, still in Mexico, Ramon began working at Teleservico Duarte. Maybe a phone company? <laughs> I'm guessing a phone company. I don't know. Held in high regards at his job, but what's more significant about this year is that he found his first wife. What Ramon didn't know about this woman was that she was already pregnant with another man's baby at the time of their marriage. Foreshadowing. <laughs> also, might have been nice to know before, hanging like, hey, we're cool, but... I'm gonna kill you. No, I got this baby. <laughs> oh. With me. With me, with me. <laughs> already. Yeah, I, I, I can't... It's it's ours now, you know? Yeah, we're a thing now. Now, no one can tell you how to react to information like this, especially after the fact. So Ramon left her after a short time of finding out. Understandable. Okay, I get it. You're just, you can't get over the fact that she had a vagina before she met you. I, I don't know. <laughs> but shortly after that, he attacked his mother for not letting him use the family phone. So, not understandable. I don't know why you would attack somebody for not being able to use, like, the family phone. Like, back in the the 80s, like, you had the one phone. I need to call somebody here. But this was a glimpse at the rage that Ramon kept kind of sort of bottled up. Ramon soon after chooses to cross the border at Jalisco and into the Valley of the Moon, Sonoma Valley, California. Ramon began working at a stable before landing a job at one of the wineries on Highway 12. Still maintaining high remarks at the jobs he held, being a newly single, young, handsome 5'8 Spanish fly that he was, <laughs> Ramon liked to drink and party like a rock star. It was the 80s, okay? I'll let you guess what drugs were popular in California in 1980. I don't need to guess. Just all the drugs. All the drugs in general were abundant. I just think of Studio 54. Yeah. like, And that's that's the perfect idea. Only Studio 54 was in New York. So oh. there's that. The fall of 83, Ramon is married again, and his second wife shortly announces that she is pregnant and the baby would be due in August. Shouts out to Leo's. But then flips out when she sees her being a little too friendly with another man. Totally time-fitting as it would actually be his kid this time. Although, I could see how my man would have doubts. <laughs> <laughs> and I may have been a little lenient when I said flips out. Ramon pinned the second wife to the ground before punching her in the stomach and threatening to kill her. And the baby? Yes. <laughs> Needless to say, this is the end of the second marriage, but not his last. Technically, he never really ends this marriage but we'll come back to that so now we're going to talk about his third wife angela richards angela would hang out at the soccer fields watching the migrant workers play and some speculate that's where she met ramon 
Ramon's story is that his pull-up game was strong and just rolled up on him one day and was like, do you want to go out, man? <laughs> Regardless, their relationship initially was a secret as Angela grew up in a very conservative Catholic sect called Tradition, Family, and Property. And they did not play around when it came to young men and women fucking around. I'm talking shrines, Virgin Marys everywhere, Jesus. Like, so they weren't keen of shacking up? Crucifixes. <laughs> the whole nine. All over the house. Women couldn't wear pants. Okay? Okay. All right. You, that What you're wearing right now? Blasphemy. <laughs> you out. You couldn't wear swimsuits. There's no plan with other kids in the neighborhood. That's fucking weird. As long as they could help it. Angela was 19 when she met Ramon in the spring of 1984, and on December 8th, they were married and already expecting their first child. Ramon wastes no time sealing the deal. You know what I'm saying? Like he is he, two pumps could not pull out of a driveway. February 24th, 1985, Sophia Ann Salcedo was born, and it was the beautiful beginning to a tragic end for this family. Ramon got a better job as a vine yardist to make more for the family and still maintain a good rapport with his bosses and employees alike. They still needed more income as they were expecting another child. On April 24, 1986, Carmina Salcedo was born. Ramon got another job at another winery and Angela... I got a question. What? Did you kill that guy next door? <laughs> that, that's so random. <laughs> Why I would was, you think I killed my neighbor? I heard neighbor? a dog barking and I was just like, what other sounds usually go on? Well, we are out here. And then I'm like, my man's ain't out there with that lady. <laughs> Did you kill him? No, I didn't kill him. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> that was random, but I'm sorry. I need to know. No, I didn't kill him. I'm sure he's I'm sure he's fine. Have you seen him? Do you have a warrant? <laughs> so, <laughs> Ramon got another job at another winery, and Angela went to work as a seamstress to help however she could. And who wouldn't want to help support the family because soon after Carmina was born, the Salcedo family was expecting the third addition to their family. Okay, slow down, Ramon. My guy. Come on. On June 25th, 1987, Teresa Garciella was born, and it's around that time that Angela was fed up with raising her girls in their crime-ridden neighborhood of Boyes Hot Springs. I think that's how you say it. It might, it might be boys. I think that is boys. Um, or Boyes. It's a boys spelled like that. No, it's with an I. Just kidding. Somebody let us know. Still, still Catholic. Boyes. She didn't quite use such strong imagery as her parents once did. And she also dropped the dress code, switching to more form-fitting clothes. She was no longer that teenage girl that snuck out the window and stole liquor from her, her parents. She wore swimsuits, miniskirts, and had friends outside of her family now. But it was still no match to Ramon's party-hard Latino machismo that he had going for him. He still stayed out late, drank, and used cocaine, and all of Angela's friends knew it. But she chose to believe his lame-ass excuses as to why he was out all night. Angela did get to go out with Ramon every once in a while. But you tell me how a man whose last two marriages ended because of unproven infidelity would act when his new bae is out at bars and she's finally starting to feel herself. Well, initially, Ramon was proud of his new wife and would show her off. But now, he's not letting her out of his sight. After Christmas of 88, the opportunity landed in Angela's lap to accentuate her femdom as she had always wanted. As a model. Pregnant model. No, she's not pregnant anymore. Okay. And if there were two things Ramon didn't want his third wife doing, 
It was working and guys looking at her. And this was both. But Angela shined in front of the camera. She had the face, the body, and she was smart. And that scared the shit out of Ramon. So after Ramon makes his impromptu trip to his hometown of Los Mochis under the guise that the family would visit Disneyland on the way back for Sophia's birthday, however, they did not make it because Ramon apparently could not find it. I'd imagine there's signs fucking everywhere for Disneyland. Just like Mickey Mouse just painted on the roads. Like Yeah, Orlando is just, was it in Orlando? That Disneyland? That's Disney World. Disney World? Oh, you said Disneyland. Both adults in a car knew what was going on, and one of the two probably couldn't afford the trip. That's my theory, but it's fine. (laughs) Angela returned from the trip in February of 89, more determined to make this modeling thing work after a major setback stemming from the fuckery of Ramon Salcedo. She finally decided that she was going to do what she had to do to provide for her family with or without Ramon through modeling. Things in the Salcedo house began to hit a rougher patch, rougher than average the verbal altercation started turning physical emotional breakdowns began to rock ramon to the core again he'd begun to use more and more cocaine and his once impeccable work history began to deteriorate he also started carrying a gun you know if you got cocaine and money you gotta carry a gun you mean but hey fuck you mean we've all had our insecurities with significant others right relationships have their ups way ups like you never met a more amazing person couldn't imagine being happier without this person kind of ups but then they have their downs and then the more downs and then the rock bottoms and then the rock bottom bottoms sometimes they get to the point of no return and then they go below sea level but they sometimes work out though unless you throw in the four times damage multiplier money you start talking. You start. You're already mad, and y'all start talking about money, bro. The root of all evil. <laughs> Only fitting, a, Fres- a Fresno County judge signed an order demanding Ramon pay almost six thousand dollars in back child support payments, order him to pay another five hundred and eleven dollars a month in child support, and he had to start making payments on a loan that defaulted of one hundred and twelve dollars a month. On April eleventh. A sheriff showed up to the South Cedar residence to serve Ramon the child support paperwork, and the jig was up. Ramon had to admit to Angela that he was still married to his second wife. Divor- How do they fucking get married more than one? How do people get away with that? Every Divorces country? are hard. But whatever, okay? He's, no. He loves her. Unless you're paying child support for a kid that's not yours. Because... They don't require DNA for that shit. Mm. You're married to her, that's your kid. True. He was married to a lot of bitches. But regardless, if you can't prove it, your third wife will never believe that's not your kid because you're paying child support for it. Just saying. April 13th, 1989, an argument erupts. He swore up and down the kid wasn't his because that always works. And according to Ramon, this is when Angela admits that Sophia, their oldest daughter, was not his. Whoops. Hmm. If true, fuck, dude. You're like three for three. Like, getting women that are already pregnant. Like, are you... Where, where are you hanging out at? Like, Lamaze classes? Motherfucking flop house. This is also the day that Ramon stole a bunch of sparkling wine from work to sell to get cocaine. Just putting it out there, if you were wondering how he could afford all this coke, it's because he's selling wine that he stole from work. 
putting it Damn out. Damn shame. Around 5.30, April 14, 1989, bank records show that Angela withdrew the last $200 from the family bank account while Ramon was out playing hide-and-go cocaine. Could it have been to escape from Ramon's grasp? A last photo shoot. We'll never know. Also that morning, she mailed a letter to the records clerk in Washoe County, Nevada, for Ramon and his second wife's marriage certificate. It would be the one thing she needed to get her and Ramon's marriage annulled. Ramon comes home to find Angela not there, but his daughters were. Ramon takes the girls one by one and loads them into his Ford LTD, and he begins to just drive around, perhaps looking for his wife. Sometime later, police received a report that gunshots had been fired at Grand Cru Winery. The victim's name was Tracy Tuvey. His feet were still inside of his vehicle, but his torso slumped into the gravel driveway of the winery, and it looked as if he was dressed for work that morning, but didn't quite make it, because he had been shot to death in the face. Oh. Tuvi was only an assistant winemaker, not Ramon's boss, not, not a supervisor, and possibly not even a, an immediate co-worker. So the connection to the murder was not linked to Ramon immediately. Soon, like very soon after, the police received another report at 8.18 a.m. of a shooting at Kenwood Winery, which is about 10 minutes away. 8.30, police arrive at the scene where the winery's foreman, Ken Booty, had been shot but not killed in the driveway of his home on his property. Ken was sitting on the front porch when Ramon pulled up. He noted how impeccably early Ramon was as his recent work history performance had dropped drastically. But it wasn't out of character to see Ramon there. After Ramon asked how he was doing, he turned and retrieved the gun to he used to kill Tuvi and pointed it at Booty and fired three times, only hitting him once in the shoulder. Damn. Booty, Booty's wife looked out the window, and that's when Ramon turned to her and fired, but the gun jammed, and Ramon just drove away. He shot three times, and only hit him once. I could shoot better than that. Police had come to the conclusion that these two shootings had to be connected somehow. When Booty was questioned, he told them that Ramon Salcido had shot him, and he had no idea why. Booty knew Ramon's recent money and marital problems, but that had nothing to do with him. He just wanted Ramon to stop fucking up at work. Police now had a name, so they radio any background information on Ramon, and they were able to pull a drunk driving incident from 1983, and that gave the address in the valley, and police were on their way to the Salcedo house. They have to find Ramon before he kills someone else. Police reach out to a neighboring department to do a welfare check on Angela's parents to warn them that Ramon had lost his shit and possibly had his three daughters with him. What they find there still haunts the dreams of the responding officers. So I'm assuming this welfare check and the officers going to the Salcedo house happened at the same time. That morning, they basically had to start calling in officers off. Like they were off. They were sick. Whatever. Like, hey. People are dying everywhere. Like, help. So at the Salcedo residence first, two responding officers parked down the block as to hide their presence just in case Ramon was at the house. All they knew was that Ramon was armed, just shot two people, killed one, and there were children possibly inside the house. That clue was given away by the three tricycles sitting out by the front door. On the front door knob and the door was a smear of blood. 
a preview of what lies inside. When the officers gain entry into the house, in any other circumstance, they probably wish they hadn't. Furniture had been flipped, the TV blaring nonsense, and blood painted the walls. There were signs of a struggle. A fight happened in the living room and led down the hallway. At the end of the hallway, the body of Angela Salcedo was found in a pool of her own blood. She had been badly beaten and shot multiple times. The fatal shot was a bullet to the back of the head. The house was then searched and they found all the things a family of three children would have. Toys, children's clothes, but no children. Police did find the address book covered in blood turned to the page of the number of Ramon's mother's house in Mexico. I don't remember address books. At the Richards residence, which was once a religious hub, you remember the crucifixes, the Jesuses, the Jesus pieces everywhere? Well, the house had been flipped upside down into glimpses of hell. In the hallway, the body of a middle-aged woman named Marion Louise Richards lay deceased. She was badly beaten and her throat slit open. By the defensive wounds on her hands and arms, she had fought for her life and the lives of the others inside. Down a hallway, the body of Angela's eight-year-old aunt, Marie Ann Richards, was found, nearly decapitated. Her body was positioned in an oh-so-awful way. Her feet lay flat on the floor with her legs spread open. Her nightgown was pulled up above her torso and her panties wrung around her ankles. In the kitchen, the body of Angela's other aunt, Ruth Bernadette Richards, who was 12. Why are these aunts so young? Because their parents were still, you know, getting it in. Okay. She was found face down in her own blood in the same fashion as Maria. Her throat had been slit to her spine. Patterns from her own blood indicated that she had been moved back and forth on her legs and feet. And bloody handprints were left on her buttocks and inner thighs. Still no signs of the three little girls or Ramon Salcedo. So I mentioned earlier that Angela cleaned out the family bank account, right? So no more cash can be withdrawn. Unbeknownst to Ramon, he attempted to withdraw money from the account at 9.34 a.m. And he tried to withdraw $140 from the account, but was denied for insufficient funds. Don't you just hate that? <laughs> no. So a detective had the idea, which is ingenious, by the way, of contacting the bank to keep the account active, even though there was no money in it, as to keep track of the location of Ramon, as he was the only other person that could access the account. The car was then used again to purchase a change of clothes from a Ross department store, and then again used to cash two checks in San Francisco. Ramon then abandoned the Ford LTD car outside of the Ross department store. Also inside of the car was copious amounts of blood and a note left behind by Ramon stating that they, meaning his children, would be together in God's other world in Espanol. Police pop the trunk and guess what they find. Guns? No. Mm. Well, yeah, they found the gun. They found the Ruger pistol and the knife used in the attacks at the Richards house and yeah, the pistol used to do all the shooting. Investigators acted quickly to contact Ramon's mother in Mexico in hopes to find that she knew where he was going or anything that she knew about Ramon or whatever, and she told them that he considered suicide. A statewide APB was then instated, including Mexico. They had to find these little girls before the worst happened. April 15, 1989, the story made front-page news 
By then, everyone knew the rampage of Ramon Salcedo. The murders, the marriages, the money trouble, the whole non. At autopsy, although Sonoma County was not prepared for five bodies to roll through, they had no county morgue and depended on the local funeral homes to perform the autopsies. Angela received multiple blows to the head from the butt of a pistol, but appeared to be upright during the altercation. She had been shot in the shoulder and twice in the head. Tubi received three shots to the head and one to the shoulder. Angela's mother also suffered the same fate. She had been beaten hard enough to fracture her skull and her throat slit ten times. Before you ask, I don't know how you slit a throat ten times. I'm glad you stopped me. <laughs> because I'm, uh, isn't that almost like decapitation at that point? Angela's aunts, Ruth and Maria, had to suffer this massacre alive until their throats were cut to the spine. This means all major arteries, veins, muscles, skin, windpipe, need I remind you, their bodies left in sexually suggestive positions with their underwear pulled to their ankles and they had to bleed out before dying. And Ramon was still on the loose. That afternoon, a man saw what he thought were three dolls at the local Pataluma City dump until one moved. He ran and got help and then came back and Carmina had been sitting upright with her chin to her chest like this. <laughs> she had held that wound on her neck closed this way. If she hadn't done this, she would have died next to her sisters. She lied there for 36 hours. Alive. Like this. Holding that wound I'm Sophia died from blood loss after three lateral cuts to the throat, deep enough to hit her spine, and one defensive wound to her hand. After post-mortem DNA testing, it was proven that Ramon was not her biological father. Teresa died from blood loss after two lateral cuts that also hit her spine. Carmina was slit from one jawbone to the other, partially detaching her tongue and exposing her voice box. That's fucking... Gross. He planned to escape to Mexico to his parents' house and kill himself, apparently. He did not plan for one of his daughters to survive this. Paramedics arrive, and that's when Carmina tells them, quote, Daddy cut me, unquote. Mm. Police at the time had no idea where Ramon was, but knew he was running to Mexico. Sonoma County went into sort of a lockdown. Kids weren't going to school. People ran out and bought guns for protection to run the risk of Ramon showing up on their doorstep. Then police re received a phone call from the brother-in-law of Ramon, and he told them that Ramon was in Mexico hiding at his mother's house in Los Mochis, and he was arrested on April 19, 1989. He told police the series of events and that his motive was to kill Angela for cheating on him with Tuvi, and that he put the girls in the car so they wouldn't see he then drove to the winery and shot Tuvi. He I then was about to say, "Ain't no way Tuvi made it." Mm -mm. <laughs> he then went to his mother-in-law's to kill her because he thought that she approved the affair. Then murdered Luis, forty-seven, his two sister-in-laws, Ruth, twelve, and Maria, eight, and then drove to San Rafael and slit the throats of his three daughters, Sophia, Carmina, and Teresa, four, three, and one. Okay, where did you do that at? Uh, the, I think, 
confess right there like boom like I, I, there's no i didn't do that no he, he's just like oh no i remember everything as if they really needed him to confess two of his victims survived and could fucking identify ramon as the killer he left fingerprints all over each crime scene and some of the fingerprints were covered in blood this is when police realized that they had seen the events of april 14th 1989 backwards ramon murdered his daughters first then he went to his in-laws then home to murder Angela, then to the wineries. Ramon blames the murders on his drug dealers. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Angela was allegedly cheating on him and not telling him he was Sophia's father, and Angela's mother for uh, allowing the infidelity and not telling him Sophia wasn't his. He blamed everybody. When he arrived back into the States, he was booked and jailed in a women's prison for protection and placed on suicide watch. Ramon's trial started September 17, 1990 in San Mateo County after trial was moved because of the the publicity the case got. The defense team of Ramon Saucedo had no argument. He was the murderer. Is? But it was their job to keep him off of death row as it takes unanimous decision to get a death sentence. They just had to get one juror on their side. The defense claimed psychotic depression further contributing his drug and alcohol binge the night before in the morning of the murders and were seeking second-degree murder or manslaughter charges. With these charges, Ramon would not be eligible for the death penalty. The prosecution saw it a bit different. They described every crime scene in full detail, the drug use, the rapes, the attempted murders, the murders, and intent to escape to Mexico by going to Mexico and hiding in his mother's house. His recorded confession and clear recount of the events as they happened, there were seven counts of first-degree murder and three counts of attempted murder the prosecution were aiming for. 
So he still got seven counts, even though the other three did not die. Was it seven people? Was it more than seven? I counted seven people. Yeah, the attempted murders were the wife when he pointed the gun at her, but it didn't go off. That's attempted murder. <laughs> bang, bang. <laughs> and then he shot the guy on the shoulder. That's another attempted murder. Oh, yeah. Those people. And then um, Carmina, his daughter, the three-year-old. I wonder how, or is she, I wonder if she's still alive. Is she, she is still alive. Huh. As far as I know, she's a pet groomer. Oh. And, um, you know, she she's out here living just like us. Okay. So the defense returned with several experts in psychology and behavior experts to run the gambit of mental illness. Ramon was going through a psychotic episode, contributed with his depression from his wife cheating on him. They also reminded the jury that Ramon intended to kill himself after he was to see his mother for the last time. The prosecution was like, are y'all finished or are y'all done? Finished or you done? How did they not catch it? He did this all in a day. They whipped out the crime scene photos. They showed autopsy reports and the photos of the defensive wounds of Angela and Luis that had fought for their lives. After four days of deliberations, the jury returned with six counts of first-degree murder, one second-degree murder, and two attempted murder charges. So now we hit the sentencing fate. The sentencing. So now we hit the sentencing. <laughs> so, so now we hit the sentencing phase because in a death penalty case, you have guilty, not guilty, and then you have dead or not dead. Yeah, the verdicts. Yeah, here, all right, dude. So, the, de the defense showed all their cards during the first phase of the trial, so now they just have to make one juror feel bad enough to keep Ramon off death row. Saying things like, quote, To put this poor, sick, pathetic, disturbed individual <laughs> to death is not justice. It's vengeance. Yeah. There's no shadow of a doubt he will die in prison. The only question is, who is going to decide when? It's silly. If sentenced, he would receive 127 years in prison. There we go. That life after you got life after life, and then life after that. <laughs> the prosecution kindly reminded the jury of the maliciousness of the attacks, the intent to escape to Mexico, and the sexually suggestive and potential sexual assaults of the two young aunts, Ruth and Maria, and the brutal murders of four children, three adults, and the intent to kill three more people. It was unanimously decided that Ramon Salcido received the death penalty. Ramon had no response physically or emotionally to his sentence on December 17, 1990, and he was shipped off to San Quentin State Prison. Oh, no. That's where um, uh, old buddy Scott Peterson's hanging out. Oh, why? Yeah. Why? He's in Colorado. Mm -hmm. San Quentin's. Scott Peterson's at San Quentin, too. Where are they now? <laughs> I used to love that show. Right? I didn't even go front. I, I mean, I still kind of go down that that fucking rabbit hole and be just like, where, where is everybody from that damn show? Uh, <laughs> well, if you're concerned about where um, Ramon Salcido is, he's a minister now, and of course he is. That's what he sells his artwork on um, crime mem memorabilia websites. Like he draws like somebody sells it for him, right? No, I, I'd imagine, like, you know, you can do it by yourself. Yeah. He's had multiple appeals, and they've all been rejected by the California State Supreme Court. 
His lawyers intend on moving up the ladder to the U.S. Supreme Court. They will appeal that his extradition from Mexico back to the United States, where he's eligible for the death penalty, was a violation of Mexican law. Basically, it was, like, no, y'all it was illegal him. for Mexico to give him back to the United States because he technically was a, still a Mexican citizen. He didn't have papers. No, he didn't have papers. Oh. But he was married, but the marry the marriage wasn't legal. You know what I mean? So who was he actually legally? His second wife. Okay. All right. Cool. Got it. Who was from Mexico. She didn't have papers either. No. So, yeah. That is, that is that case. That is something. That's how you bring a knife to a gunfight. Nobody had. He brought a knife and a gun to of no fights at well, all. Yeah, actually. no, he was more efficient with a knife than a gun, shooting somebody three times and missing. Dang, mm-hmm. Ramon. Thank you for listening to tonight's case. Error. With that being said, I hope you like this case. I, I don't hope you don't like. I hope you didn't like this case. I just, you know, I wanted to tell the story because it is it is one that still needs to be heard. So I'm glad I got to do it close to the anniversary of the case um if you would like to reach out to us instagram blood and firewater podcast twitter at bow pod squad shoot us an email at blood and firewater at gmail.com we're doing a little bit more to further entertain you guys look us up on patreon we will start patreon episodes soon i think that's it for this week's show stay alert and stay alive Welcome to Down the Rabbit Holes podcast. I'm Melissa. And I'm Amy. We're really excited for you to check out our podcast. Yeah, so we're going to do what y'all love, which is talk about theories. So the format is one of us each week will bring you a story. And after we're done telling the story, Melissa and I are going to discuss theories. We'll talk about what may have happened and what could have happened. Basically, the conversation every true crime person loves after they get through a case. So check us out. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. And you can follow us on all the social medias, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're Down the Rabbit Holes Podcast. Thanks. Bye. Bye.